The text for today's sermon will come from the book of Isaiah, chapter 42. I'll be reading verses 1 through 9. If you'll be following along in one of the Bibles that are in the pews, you can find this passage on page 602. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and who comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God's kingdom will reign over this world. His, his kingdom shall come. His will shall be done. But how does the kingdom come? How, how does God conquer his enemies. I want, I want to use a simple illustration here. Imagine if God were to pick a basketball team by which he would bring justice to the world, by which he would conquer his enemies. He could pick, he could pick any basketball players that he wanted to select. He could pick LeBron James, and Steph Curry, and Kevin Durant. But God shocks everyone by saying, I pick Clifton staff members. I pick John Kimball, and David Dykes, and Mark Smith. Now, now why would God do that? I think that's the kind of way God would act. Why, why, why would he move in that direction? Because if, if victory comes through LeBron James and Steph Curry and Kevin Durant, then they get all the glory for the victory, don't they? But if victory comes through John Kimball and David Dykes and Mark Smith against such players, then God gets all the glory. It's evident that the victory is by his hand and his strength alone. God works, God works with the weak. That's good news for us. And all the praise and all the glory and all the honor belongs to him. I think we see that so clearly in our text today. And I see four themes, four truths in this text. I want to think about these things. The first is that Jesus is God's servant. 
Our first truth is Jesus is God's servant. Who is the servant spoken of in this text? Well, I want to back up for a moment. In one sense, the servant is clearly Israel. The servant, there are many servant passages in Isaiah. But Isaiah 41, Isaiah chapter 41, just a page or so back, verse 8 says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. So a number of times, Isaiah tells us that the servant is Israel. But when we keep reading these servant passages, a most curious thing happens. The servant is Israel, and yet the servant transcends Israel. Ultimately, the servant is Jesus Christ himself. Think about what the word servant means. What does a servant do? A servant serves. A a servant obeys. But Israel, as God's servant, you know, if you know Israel's history, Israel as God's servant, again and again, refused to serve the Lord. Israel, again and again, refused to obey God. They complained that the Lord was boring. They no longer found serving the Lord to be thrilling. And they violated as well. They thought other gods were more exciting and more thrilling than the Lord. But Jesus, as the true servant of the Lord, always did God's will. If we read Isaiah chapter 49, verses 5 and 6, just a few pages down, Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6, we see that the servant can't be restricted to the people of Israel. Here's what it says. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. I only want to make one point from this passage here. The servant here can't be limited to Israel since the servant will bring back Israel to the Lord. Obviously, Israel can't bring itself back to God. Someone else here has to restore Israel. And we know from the New Testament that that servant is Jesus Christ. In fact, we learn from Isaiah 53 how Jesus brings his people back to God. Let's just read a little part of this. So fitting, right on a day in which we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he, that's the servant, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Again, Isaiah distinguishes between the servant and the people of Israel. The servant bears the sorrows and the sins and the transgressions of his people. So if we trust in Jesus and we repent of our sins, we are forgiven through the work of the servant. You know, John is thinking about the servant in John chapter 1 where he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the servant of the Lord who takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah also tells us that as the servant of the Lord, he was chosen by God. He is the one in whom God delights. We saw that, we see that in our passage before us. And, and again, that's picked up in the New Testament. It's fascinating to see how New Testament writers pick this up at Jesus' baptism. We read at Jesus' baptism that God speaks. And this is what God says at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Those words, well pleased, allude to Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1, where God says he delights in his servant. So that's the connection, right, between well-pleased and delights. When God looked upon his son, Jesus Christ, he delighted in him. He loved him with a pure and powerful love for a number of reasons. But a fundamental reason was because Jesus had always obeyed him. That's what a servant is to do, remember? He, he delighted in his son. What was Jesus doing the 30-some years before his baptism? He was always, he wasn't in public ministry, but he was always, always doing the Father's will. And the Father delighted in the Son, and the Son delighted in the Father. And we can expand this out, right? The fellowship among the Members of the Trinity, what's it marked out by? By a thunderous and wonderful joy. A a joy like a never-ending spring. What is God like? He's a God full of joy. Overflowing, overwhelming with joy. Do you think God is fundamentally crabby and angry? That is completely wrong, isn't it? That's one reason it's such a wonderful thing to be a Christian. Our God is a God of overwhelming joy. And I want to be full of that joy. And you want to be full of joy too. I want to be as happy as possible. And if we want to be happy, we need to have fellowship with Someone who is happy. We all know, don't we? We all know it's, it's hard. It's hard to be happy. God can give us that, but it's hard to be happy if you're around grumpy and crabby people. Maybe, maybe you've experienced that. You're around somebody who's, they're, they're fundamentally grumpy. That's difficult, isn't it? Or, or maybe, maybe you're that grumpy person. Perhaps. Anyway, it's hard to be around people who are cynical and negative and critical. The way to happiness is to be in fellowship with the happiest persons in the universe. 
And that's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because they are full of amazing and overwhelming joy. The only way to be truly happy is to be in right relationship with the Creator, with the servant of the Lord, and to never forget that our God is an ocean of joy. Second, we see that Jesus as God's servant is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is empowered as a servant of the Lord by the Holy Spirit. Our salvation is the work of the Father and the work of the Son and the work of the Holy Spirit. If you've been following things, there's a lot of talk these days about whether we worship the same God as, as Muslims. And we see here, don't we, the striking difference between us. We confess, since we worship Jesus as the servant of the Lord, and then looking at the rest of the Bible, we confess that God is a trinity. And the Muslims reject that. It's a very, it's a very different definition of who God is. We confess that Jesus is the eternal son of God. We worship Jesus as the Son of God, and at the same time we confess that God is one in his essence. Jesus was the Son of God, and yet he never, ever surrendered his divinity while he lived on earth as a man. But this passage tells us we should never forget as well that Jesus was a human being. He was endowed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We see in verse 1 of Isaiah 42, the Lord says, I have put my spirit upon him. Isaiah again points to Jesus' baptism in saying this. Jesus' baptism indicates that God is doing a new thing. We already saw, right, Jesus' whole life. He pleased God. Every, every, every moment of his life before his baptism, Jesus was pleasing the Lord. But at his baptism, at, at, the, at, the, at the River Jordan, at those waters, God began to do a new thing. What a place. What a place to start a revolution that would change the world in this little country, in this out-of-the-way place. But when Jesus was baptized, God said there that he was well pleased with him and endowed him with the Spirit for his public ministry. By the way, parenthetically, never ever think that the place you're in has to change for you to be effective. God God can use you just where you are. God, God can change the world wherever you are. So let's ask God for contentment. Doesn't mean we should never move. But God changed the world, didn't he? Beginning here at the, the waters of the river Jordan. And if it, weren't, if it weren't for Jesus Christ, you probably never would have heard of that river. You know, this fits with Isaiah 42.9. It says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. 
So God declares in Isaiah, I'm going to do a new thing. What's the former things in this text? He says, you know about the former things. I'm going to do a new thing. The former things is God freeing Israel from Egypt at the Exodus. But now in Isaiah, God promises he will do a new thing. And the new things are better than the old things. And the new things are promised and prophesied hundreds of years in advance. And God fulfills that new thing in the coming of Jesus Christ as the servant of the Lord. The new thing commences when Jesus is endowed with the Spirit at his baptism. So, so at his baptism, Jesus is anointed and empowered by the Spirit for his ministry. We read in Luke that Jesus, after his baptism, was full of the Holy Spirit. And then that he returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the, by the devil. So he was full of the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. Luke chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And then a few verses later, Jesus' first sermon in his hometown, Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. So Jesus begins his ministry by emphasizing that he is the anointed Messiah, that he is the servant of the Lord, the spirit-anointed servant of God. Our salvation is the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father sent the Son out of love, and the Son and the Son gladly and willingly came for our salvation. And the Spirit, the Spirit equipped Jesus with power to carry out his ministry. So the members of the Trinity worked in concert together and with overflowing joy. The, the, Father, the Father planned our salvation, and, and, and the Son accomplished it, and the Spirit applied it. What a great salvation we have, a salvation of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Never forget, never forget in these days that our faith is a Trinitarian faith, that our faith is one where we celebrate the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That brings us to our third truth in this text. Third, we are promised that Jesus as the servant will change the world. We're promised that Jesus will change the world. The world is full of injustice and evil. Nate prayed about this, didn't he? Terrorism, rape. I mean, these aren't just words, are they? These things are happening. Racism, murder, political corruption, sexual abuse, which is sometimes sometimes carried out by pastors and, and priests. Think on a smaller scale. 
people wrongly justifying divorce and remarriage, people lying to their girlfriends or their boyfriends, or people sleeping with their girlfriends and boyfriends, and they're not married, parents yelling and screaming at their children, and children defying and disobeying their parents, people lying on their taxes, road rage in cars, husbands and wives arguing and arguing and arguing with one another, and all of us trying to impress one another with our bodies or our intelligence or our clothes or something. What a mess this world is. What a mess. But what does this text say? Justice is coming. That truth is repeated several times in our verses. Verse 1 says, The servant will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 3, He will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. There's a sense there it's going to take time, right? He won't grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. How we long for everything to be put right. How discouraging it is to see how many wrongs there are in the world. But every wrong, every wrong will be righted. God's law will rule the entire world. The world will bloom with joy. All will submit to God's authority. We look forward to the day when what we read in Amos chapter 5, verse 25, will be a reality. Justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So we're promised here, aren't we, in this new year, there are hopes and dreams in this new year. It's right to have hopes and dreams, but, but there's a new world coming. There's a world that's far better than this world with no pain, no sorrow, no injustice. I like the words of the song. Some of you know it. The mansions of the Lord, which is written about soldiers dying in war. Here, here's part of it. To fallen soldiers, let us sing where no rockets fly, nor bullets wing. Our broken brothers let us bring to the mansions of the Lord. No more bleeding, no more fight, no prayers pleading through the night. Just divine embrace, eternal light, to the mansions of the Lord, where no mothers cry and no children weep. The mansions of the Lord. Well, then Isaiah tells us something completely unexpected. The way Jesus brings justice is totally different from every other ruler in the history of the world. The kings of the world bring justice through war and through conquering their enemies. They smash and destroy and annihilate those who rise up against them. In the United States, we're very proud of our military power. We are still, it's just a fact, isn't it? We are still the world's one great superpower. 
We're the richest. We're the strongest nation in the world. But the servant doesn't bring justice through military might. Notice verse 3. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. That's talking about battle in the street. Verse 3. That's not the way he's going to do it. We win our battles by bombing our enemies to smithereens, and we invade their cities, and sometimes we fight in their streets. But Jesus doesn't come as a warrior the first time, does he? There weren't loud cries of battles in the streets of Rome or in the streets of Jerusalem when he came. He didn't come to inflict violence. That's the way human beings win battles. He came, that's what we celebrate today, he came to suffer violence. How amazing. He brings salvation and justice to the nations through suffering. For by dying for the sins of the world and by offering salvation to sinners. Jesus is a gentle and a humble king. He comes to Jerusalem the first time on a donkey, not on a stallion. That's what happened at his first coming. At his second coming, he will be riding on a mighty stallion. He'll come on a white horse with the armies of heaven. So justice comes with the cross, right, and then the crown. But first, first, the cross, right? First the cross, then the crown. So if we think about it, when we think about justice, it should frighten us. For if there will be justice, how will we be spared? Why should we be spared? We too have gone astray. We too have rebelled against God's authority. We too have turned to our own way. If we get what we deserve, if we get justice, that's punishment, isn't it? Not mercy. So before justice is realized, God offers salvation to all peoples through his servant Jesus. Look at verse 6. I will give you as the servant, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. The servant brings God's covenant light, God's salvation to the whole world, to all nations, to all peoples everywhere. We see what Jesus came to do in verse 7, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Jesus opened the eyes of those who are physically blind, but he also came to give sight to those who have lost their way, to those who are confused. You know, I remember when I became a Christian right before when I was 16, I remember it was shortly before I became a believer, and I thought about my life, and I remember thinking, I'm confused about life. I'm confused about my direction and what I should do. That, that's what it means, part of what it means to be blind. I was just confused. Which way should I go? I was, I was blind. That's what it means to be an unbeliever. I was wandering. And Jesus also came to free those who are imprisoned. If we follow our desires, we become enslaved to those desires, don't we? We may be in a prison of lust. 
and sexual sin. We may be in a prison of eating whenever we feel a little bit down. Or we may be in a prison of gossip and slander of others. Or maybe, maybe we're just blind to the self-righteousness that is in our life. Maybe, maybe you're the type of person who listens to sermons and you talk about, after you hear a sermon, the one thing you disagreed with instead of thinking of the blessing for your own life and the word God is speaking to you. Are you pretending to be righteous and failing to see the sin that is in your own life? Are you, are you, are you excusing sin in your own life right now in your blindness? Jesus came to bring us out of those dark places in our lives. Jesus came to free us and liberate us and to make us new. He came to free us from that which imprisons us and enslaves us. He came to bring us wonderful joy by forgiving us and cleansing us through his death as the servant of the Lord. Because Jesus came to save the world and not to condemn the world, we see the fourth and final truth in these verses. Jesus gives hope. Jesus gives hope to the downcast. Now, I know you're not all downcast today, but even if you're not downcast, you will be sometime. (laughs) And you minister to people who are. So this this is great news. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. A bruised reed, what's a bruised reed? It's a reed that's almost wrecked, isn't it? Isaiah chapter 36, verse 6, uses the same idea, the same wording. The Lord warns Israel against trusting Egypt because Egypt is a broken or bruised reed. And the Lord says, don't, don't trust Egypt because it won't support you. It's a bruised reed, and it'll just pierce your hand. A faintly burning wick, right, is one that's scarcely working. You know, we, we got a candle like that over, uh, that we lit the other day, and we, we lit it, and it, it just kept going out. You know, but a faintly burning wick is one the, the the flame hovers, it's there, but it's smoldering. It's about it's about to go out. It's scarcely working. So what do you what do you do if you want if you want to change the world? You, know, you, you have a project. I want to change the world. I want to transform the world. Who, who are you going to pick to be on your side? The bruised reeds? The smoldering rick, wicks? That's, that's not how you're going to win. Right? That's how the world thinks. But praise the Lord. Our gospel is so different from the way the world thinks. There are no little people. Are you broken and bruised? Do you feel you're of no use to God and you're no use to others? Do you feel your candle is so small it'd just be better if it went out, if it was snuffed out? Remember this. Jesus is a tender and loving and patient Savior. He has come to repair 
broken and bruised reeds. He's come to grant light when that flame is, is flickering and smoldering. There, I, I recommend to you the book by Richard Sibbs, the great Puritan, his classic book, A Bruised Reed. It, 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 if you haven't seen that book or read it, it's a short read. It would be a great book to read for you in this new year. If we know ourselves, we realize we're broken beyond belief. We're all more flawed and we're all weaker than we possibly understand. I, I understand better, I understand better as I get older how sinful and weak I am. And yet I know I really understand it very little. But I just understand it better because I've lived longer. I've had to see myself as a Christian for a longer period of time. When we see our brokenness, there's another great danger. And what is it? We're close to crashing on the rocks of discouragement and depression. When, when, when we see our emptiness, we can begin to think, well, we're, I'm not even a Christian. I'm not even a believer. When, when we see our imperfections, there's a danger on the other side of thinking we're just utter, utter and complete failures. We must remember everything we do as Christians. God works in us, doesn't he? But everything we do as Christians is still touched by sin. We're not perfect reeds. We're not perfect wicks. But that doesn't mean that we don't belong to God. And that doesn't mean that we're useless or fruitless. Jesus doesn't discard bruised reeds and start over. He loves us and heals us and strengthens us for his glory. I I, I think of this often with fellow believers. I've said this many times. Fellow believers get tired of us, don't they? Fellow believers get short with us, even those those who love us the best. They they do, don't they? And we get short with them. (laughs) Even even, even if they're those who are closest to us, no wonder they get tired of us. We're sinners, and they're sinners. That's the way it is. But God in Jesus Christ is very patient with us. He doesn't forsake us or abandon us. He works out his will through us and in us. We read in verse 4, this is a most fascinating verse. Jesus will not grow faint. By the way, that's the verb be quenched. Or be discouraged, that's the word bruised, till he has established justice in the earth. Let me say it again. The verb grow faint is exactly the same verb as quench in verse 3. And the verb be discouraged is exactly the same verb as the word bruised in verse 3. Jesus will not grow faint or be quenched or be discouraged, bruised, till he's established justice in the earth. That isn't an accident. These words aren't common in Hebrew. God's teaching us, your light may be faint and it may be about to be quenched, but Jesus' work will not be quenched. Jesus' work will succeed. You may feel bruised, beaten up, and discouraged, 
but he will see you through to victory. He's not a warrior who came to destroy. He's a savior who came to strengthen and sustain us. He loves to help the weak and the downtrodden and the discouraged. How do we know, how do we know this victory will take place? And we're told in verse 5, really, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. How do we know we'll conquer? Our God is the sovereign creator of the universe. He created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. No one takes a single breath apart from his will. So why does Isaiah tell us here that God is the creator, because our God is the creator and our redeemer. The one who created us is the one who promised to redeem us. So God will definitely fulfill his promises because he's sovereign over everything. God is strong enough to redeem us because he made us, because he's the Lord. So, I close by saying, if God wants a basketball team to win, it'll win. It'll win. Sort of like the TCU game the other last night with Oregon, right? They were behind 31 to nothing at halftime. But if God wants that team to win that's behind 31 to nothing, they win. They ultimately do it. Even if, even if LeBron James and Steph Curry and Kevin Durant are on the other team, if God wants the team with John Kimball, Mark Smith, and David Dykes to win, it wins. God always triumphs. Let's pray. Father, how wonderful it is to know that you sent Jesus as the servant to bear your wrath against us and to free us from our sins. We celebrate that now as we come to the Lord's Supper. May we be encouraged that you will triumph and that you triumph through the suffering of your Son and that you restore us and heal us as bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, that you are patient with us and that you redeem us Lord, in the next year, may we be full of hope and joy, and may we give ourselves to you in confidence that you are working your will in us and through us, and that we are always victors in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.